we know that overpromise underdeliver is bad news. Like, don't do that, right? That's clear that it's dumb. But the underpromise overdeliver, just to blow some minds for a second, that's also terrible. And here's why. It's a form of lying and it creates what I call expectation inflation, which means that if you are consistently underpromising and overdelivering to me, what's going to happen? I'm going to take what you say and I'm going to inflate it. And that's going to become the new expectation. And when you don't hit it, I'm going to be disappointed. This is Outside Sales Talk, the best podcast for outside salespeople. I'm your host, Steve Benson, and we're here to chat with the world's top sales experts so that you can get their best sales tactics to level up your game. Welcome back to Outside Sales Talk. I have Todd Capone with me today, and we're going to talk about the transparency sale. Todd, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Our, uh, our pre-show conversation was pretty awesome, so I can't wait to get into this. Yeah, we, we should have been recording, but yeah, next time, next time. <laughs> um, so Todd is the author of the best-selling book, The Transparency Sale, and he's also got a book that's just releasing right now. By the time this, uh, this podcast is out, it will be released, The Transparent Sales Leader. He's also the founder, speaker, and the workshop leader at Sales Melon and the host of Sales History Podcast. So uh, let's jump into it, Todd. First question, why is transparency so important in sales? Well, let's, uh, let's start with a story because like transparency is such an overused word. Like I'm transparent, oh, cool. Um, and the story is where this all started. Um, my last role, I was the chief revenue officer of a company here in Chicago where I live called Power Reviews. And you could probably guess from the name, we were in the ratings and reviews space, right? We help retailers and brands collect and display ratings and reviews. So, you know, you're buying a pair of Crocs, you see the product, you scroll down the reviews. That was us helping with the collect and display for them and a thousand other companies. But here's what happened. A few years ago, uh, we engaged with Northwestern University on a consumer research study. So all we were asking was, when a website's acting as a salesperson, what do people do? And three data points came out of it, two of which changed my life like could only happen to a nerd. The, the, the first one that didn't was that we all read reviews today, right? Like you're buying something you haven't bought before that's of medium to high consideration. It was like 99%. But the two that changed my life, number one, 85% of us go to the negative reviews first, right? So you're buying something online, you skip the fives and you want to read the fours, threes, twos, and ones. and a product on a five-star scale, and this is across all product categories, that has an average review score between a 4.2 and a 4.5, that's actually optimal for purchase conversion. Meaning a product that's got negative reviews right under it helps that product sell better than a product that's got nothing but perfect five-star reviews. So I looked at that and like, there's a company you may have heard of, uh, they're called um, Amazon. Yeah, I'm Amazon. familiar. Yeah, like you might be familiar with them. Um, like they were the first ones to really start doing this in 1995. Like you buy something, hey, tell us if you liked it, if you didn't like it, and we're going to display it for everybody. And the next thing you know, Amazon's done pretty well. So I started looking at the behavioral science on this to think, all right, if that's what a website's acting as a salesperson, when an individual is left to their own devices and they want to make a purchase and they require that information, they actually want it first does that happen in human to human or B2B and, and could it, and what would the impact be? And I found really quickly that as it turns out, it has no difference between when a website's acting as a salesperson or when you are acting as a salesperson, that our brains know that perfection doesn't exist. And we got a little filter in our brain that until we're able to assess that negative, which is why we go for it first, we can't even really truly process the positive without having a little bit of a BS filter on it. And so we started trying it as you know, my team thinking like, hey, I've been telling them to hide the flaws and pretend we're perfect. Well, hey, why don't we position ourselves as, hey, here's what you might not love or here's what you might find when you do your research that is true or not true or here's something a competitor does a little better than us. And if that's going to be important, let's let's address that now. Lead with it. And dude, magic happened. Like sales cycles sped up dramatically because we were 
helping the buyer actually get to a prediction faster. Our win rates went up partially because we were qualifying in faster the deals that we should be working on and qualifying out the deals we're going to lose anyway, just losing faster. And then the fun part was we made it really hard on our competitors to compete against us because like we are already embracing the pros and the cons. And so they had no you know, trust built and no authority to be able to throw in something else without that client coming back to us. And I, it went so well, I was like, I got to get these ideas out there. And so that's, that's transparency, right? It's embracing the truth. It's like an old quote. We were joking before the, the uh, discussion about my nerdery for sales history. There's a quote from 1918 from an author named Arthur Dunn. If the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. That's the mantra, right? Embrace the things you give up to be great at your core because we all are. And a buyer requires that to make a prediction and eventually make a purchase. That is transparency in the B2B space. Well, and I, and I think we talk so much about trust and how important trust is. And there's, there's a few ways to build trust. One is to know someone for a really long time. If, they, if someone's been doing business with you for five years, they, they know they can count on you. They know they can trust you. Um, and, and so you've built trust with time. But what if you would like to have your sales cycle be three months and not five years? How do you build trust then? And I think transparency is, and, 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 and being transparent about your flaws and about your weaknesses and is one way to to build that trust quickly. That's a, it's a key piece of it, right? I mean, no one's perfect. Well, yeah. And if you think about it, again, through that lens of sales history, I'm a sales history nerd, right? Um, if we haven't made that clear already, that there's literally chapters in books from the early 1900s on honesty. Like they knew that honesty was the right way to go, right? Not only from a feels good, but like it, it helps. But the, the difference today, so like I, I, I quit my job to write this book, right? And then one of my buddies who was running North America for Salesforce finds out, calls me up and he's like, Todd, I, I heard you left power reviews, like to write a book. I got an idea. Come be a CRO for uh, this uh, company that I'm an investor in. Do that for a couple of years and think of the stories you'll have. And I was like, Andy, it's not a memoir. It needs to be written now because... We've always known honesty and transparency sells better, but because of the proliferation of reviews and feedback and everything we do, buy and experience, the ease at which your buyers have to be able to talk to peers and get the truth, we have to do this now. Like that's part of this whole idea is transparency sells better than perfection, but we've got to do it anyway. And I believe that the one mindset shift that's required, and I think it speaks to why the sales profession continues to flourish, even though we've been worried about the proliferation of information making salespeople meaningless since literally 1912. I got a quote for you if you want it. Is this idea that sales is not about convincing. Buyers don't buy when they're convinced. If they do, they're not happy about it. Buyers buy when they can predict. And I believe that if you take that lens as a sales professional, that, hey, my, my job is to help a buyer predict whether or not I'm going to help them get to their outcome or somebody else and get to that prediction as quickly as possible. Through that lens, if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it, right? Be an advocate for your buyer. That transparency, to your point, builds trust. But like I said, you got to do it anyway, because if they find out the truth from somebody other than you, that's when trust becomes eroded pretty quickly. And that's a hole that's really hard to dig out of. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that makes a ton of sense. If they can predict their outcomes, then it reduces risk. And, uh, you know, we all talk about how do you reduce risk? Well, you let, if people feel confident that they can predict the outcome, then the risk is reduced. Yeah. Uh, I mean, would it be helpful for me to tell you a quick story about yeah. what, what this means? Cause like, you're probably thinking like, Hey, Todd, do I go into my next sales engagement and start off by going, hey, everybody, this is why we suck. Like, no, take it easy. Like that four, two to four, five is really important. But <laughs> like, here, here was like the, the first time I tried this. Um, I was, I had a two day trip 
in New York. Again, I was the CRO of this company. We had like investor meetings and stuff going on. Um, I, I flew there the morning day one and I had an afternoon, like it was a one to three meeting scheduled. When I landed, turned on the phone, oh, Todd, sorry, the meeting's got to be postponed. Now, Manhattan's not the worst place in the world to have an open afternoon. So I grab a cab, I'm going to go to a Starbucks, but my VP of sales here in Chicago texts me and he's like, dude, we just got an incredible lead from Calvin Klein, right? So for us, incredible lead. So I picked up the phone and called my VP of sales. I'm like, hey, dude, I'm bored. Tell me about it. And he's like, well, uh, they're starting an evaluation. They've got a team that's building an RFP right now. I'm like, yay, everybody loves RFPs, right? Um, <laughs> and then uh, based on that, they're going to have us fly to New York and do the full dog and pony show. And I was like, oh, wait, New York. Hey, I forgot that they're in New York. There's no pressure on the rep. Like, seriously, I know it's like a one in a hundred shot, but could you have the rep reach out to their head of e-commerce, who's the decision maker on this thing, and just let them know I'm in town and like no BS, like my meeting just canceled. I've got a whole afternoon open. And if he wants to go grab coffee, cool. So uh, the VP of sales tells the rep, the rep, I don't know what happened in the telephone game and you're going to about to hear why. The guy says, yes. I go, so I go to their headquarters. I check in, I meet this guy. Uh, he's, he's very New York. Like there was no small talk, uh, like right to business. We get in his office, his small Manhattan office. He hands me his HDMI cable for the cord that came, comes out of his monitor. And he's like, hey, you can plug this in for your presentation. And I'm like, I, I, I thought we were having coffee, like presentation, like what are you talking about? But I, I didn't say it, like my wheels are going. I turn to my right and people are rolling chairs into the room and not just people who's seven. So there's now nine <laughs> of us elbow to elbow in this hot Manhattan office with an expectation that I'm about to give a presentation. Now, the guy, that head of e-commerce, again, no small talk, comes right at me with, Todd, listen, we're talking to your competitor. We're talking to you. How are you better? And like all the eyeballs in the room are on me. I'm like, I feel people's arms going up like, all right, here it comes. And again, I'm fresh on all this research and I have a theory and I'd been thinking about it on the flight, like it was consuming me. So I thought, I'm going to try it. Like I'm all by myself here anyway. So if it goes off the rails, I'll probably just lie about what happened. I'm just kidding. But um, <laughs> the, the guy asked again, how are you better? I decided to answer this way. I know this sounds crazy, but can I start with how they're better than us? And there's a reason why they, they just released an add on to their core technology that not only do we not have, but it's not even on our roadmap. And if that's going to be an important consideration in your evaluation, it would probably be good to talk through that now before you build out a whole RFP and we're flying people to New York, right? And they all looked at me and they're like, we haven't heard, what is it? And so I explained it. I literally pitched it as though I was the competitor because they were going to do it. Mm -hmm. And right. And so I knew it was coming and I did want to qualify out. If this was going to be important, let's get it on the table. Now we talked through it. They asked me a couple of questions like, Hey Todd, if we did decide we wanted to do that, how would you handle it? I'm like, I don't know. They just announced it yesterday. Like, I have no idea. Right. But my assumption is we would, you know, our, our platform allows for you to plug in, like, blah, blah, blah. They came back and said, Todd, it's not something we've considered. It's interesting, but it's not a priority at all. Um, like, all right, cool. But we don't do that stuff because we want to be great at this. Right. This is our core. And I went through that. 15 minutes later, he stops the meeting, looks at everybody, and he's like, hey, have you all heard enough? And they're like, yeah they all get up and leave. So no slides. It was just like, instead of it being a customer vendor, it was like, we were all at a table trying to make a good decision for one another. They left. This guy did something I'd never had any buyer do in my history. And again, this is the first time trying this. Pulls a folder from his credenza, opens it up. It's his e-commerce budget. Fifth line down says ratings and review software. He points at it and he's like, can you hit that? And I was like, I, I don't know, but let's have a conversation about it, right? 10 days later, after I'd left, he called to tell me that they decided not to do the RFP, not to fly anybody around. And they'd already informed, informed the competitor that they were going with us. And they just felt like it was a better match based on our focus. And we literally cut four months out of a sales cycle by just helping the buyer predict, right? And now many people say, Todd, that's bold, man. That's, is it bold? 
to, to control the message? Like, would I rather it come from them or come from me? Would I rather it come now or come three months from now after we filled out an RFP and, you know, missed out on other opportunities we could have been focused on. And I just flew people around in New York and all that. Like for me, it, would I rather message come from me or come from them? Right. It's, I don't think it's bold at all. I think it's helping the buyer predict. I think it's our job. Right. And yeah. in that matter, it was amazing. We kept doing it and we became Chicago's fastest growing tech company from 2014 to 2017. And I, I have to believe that that was part of it. It's, it's crazy. I, like in our business where, uh, well, my, my day job, not my, not, not the, uh, not the podcast, but the, the, the thing that I, that actually pays the bills around here. Um, I, I run a company called Badger Maps, as you may know. Um, yeah. but, uh, we're, we're dealing with something very similar right now. And, um, in, in, and I, I haven't, I hadn't thought to kind of do exactly what you just did there, but it's, it's brilliant. I mean, so we, we have, we basically, we make a, a piece of field sales software, but there's two very different types of field salespeople who are looking for similar features, but they're really presented in different ways and they're done differently. One is a door-to-door field salesperson and one is a business-to-business field salesperson, which just really means you're walking down a street or walking through a neighborhood, going door-to-door, selling real estate services, solar panels, um, you know, pest control to homes, et cetera, or you're going to businesses, either dropping in or because you have appointments and you could be selling very similar things, but you could be selling pest control to businesses. You're going to sell it differently than to homes. But, you know, a lot of our customers are selling med device companies, selling to doctors, um, pharmaceutical companies, uh, any kind of business service, but it's B2B versus door-to-door sales. And we have, we have two competitors that are that have always been focused on the door-to-door sales and we've always been focused on on the business-to-business sales and uh and there's another company as well that focuses on on the business-to-business sales but the the door-to-door sales people lately like the last i don't know year both of them decided they also wanted to just say they did what we do too but it's it's like you could kind of jam this the round peg in the square hole but you really can't and like they it is if you look at it you're like oh yeah i mean this is just a different thing but i i i'm thinking that it would be a really i'm trying to think i think incorporating what you're talking about doing here would really be helpful to us well yeah i mean if you think about even you know, it started to really dawn on me that the most successful like b2c companies in the world do this brilliantly like you know, Ikea, right? Like you you go to an Ikea, anytime you go to a retailer and they have to hand you a map, like, you know, this is going to suck. Right. And like, you finally find what you're looking for. There's no salesperson that's going to help you. You got to write down the code or take a picture of it with your phone because you get to go to the warehouse yourself, pull the boxes onto a cart that doesn't have brakes, which (laughs) seems like a huge oversight, roll it into the parking lot, F-bomb your way through jamming it in the back of your car Tetris style, drive home with a souvenir injury or two to remember your experience, get home thinking you just left it all there. You open the box, there's 200 parts and not a word on it except for like Svarta or whatever. <laughs> and, and then like when you get done, you're like, wow, this looks pretty good. Like we should have bought the end tables with this bedroom set. Ikea is the number one furniture retailer in the world for 14 straight years. And it's because they embrace what they give up to be great at their core. They say, hey, listen, you're gonna find it, pick it, pack it, jam it, assemble it, but we're gonna give you modern Scandinavian design furniture that you didn't pay much for. And there's good meatballs upstairs too. But the point being- I do love those meatballs. They are fantastic, (laughs) right? But like, if somebody comes in saying, hey, I need my living room feng shui and like, cool, go to room and board, go to Macy's, go like, cool. That's not what we do. They bring in everybody pre-qualified, everybody, like you're going to have that experience and you're going to leave satisfied because that expectation has been set accurately and consistently met. They do it. Costco does it right. Like you want to, you need some ranch dressing. You get one choice at Costco and it's almost a gallon. Oh, and did I mention you have to uh, pay to even walk in the place and there's going to be a woman at the door checking your receipt to make sure you didn't steal anything. Right, like they're number two retailer let's, in the country behind and, Walmart. And how do you, 
how do you, I, I, so I shop at Costco every, you know, what, every two weeks, sometimes every week I go there, you know, if I'm entertaining and having a dinner or something, but like, I'm always, I always wonder about that lady checking, checking things in the way out. It's like, how, how did you think I was going to steal a gallon of ranch dressing? I mean, like <laughs> what, what thing do you guys even sell here that I could like have down my pants? <laughs> like, what, what is the thing? <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's like, you're uh, Hey, you need a toothbrush. Here's a half dozen. Like you walk out with one of those. Right. Like it's, it, but again, I mean, the, the point is, I think B2B has got a great opportunity to do that from a marketing level, like embrace what you give up to be great at your core. Like we're not going to be all this. We're going to be this and we're going to be the best at it. You bring in people pre-qualify, which helps you from an efficiency perspective and a cycle length perspective. But then as a seller, having what I call clinical levels of empathy for your buyer, right? If you were in their shoes, what would they find? What would they think? based on the requirements, what are they gonna love and what might they not? Control that message, build trust, be the Sherpa through the journey. And you know, with so many companies, especially if you've got competitors like you do at Badger, right? Like you're competing on your offering and your pricing and the, there's an opportunity to differentiate in the way that you sell. And that's one of the things that's been so fun about this is like one of my clients is in the antivirus space. Right, they sell technology to protect like endpoint solutions, meaning your laptops, your workers' laptops, and all that. There's 56 companies that all do the same thing. Their websites all look exactly the same thing, but they consistently win because they're helping buyers predict. They're going in and qualifying in and out as quickly as possible using transparency. But that trust means their customers buy faster, they stay longer, they buy more, and they become more likely to advocate. And that's why they're killing all the rest of them. Makes a ton of sense. Is there a strategy or a specific way that you like to use to gauge where you're at in the trust building with a customer or how much, how much does a customer trust me right now? You know, not really. I mean, just assume that um, you need to, uh, with every interaction with a potential uh, buyer, you're either building trust or eroding it, right? It's never staying the same. And so know that a lot of these buyers already have a perception of you before that first conversation, either through things they've seen, things they've heard, that there's probably a perception out there. And now is your chance to prove their perception correct, whether it's you suck or you're awesome. And I believe that that opportunity to do that is when you embrace trust or embrace transparency right out of the gate, that unexpected honesty is a spike in trust right out of the gates and you're building your whole relationship on a bed of trust, right? So assume there's something out there already. And, and part of what I always advise every company to do is like, go Google your yourself, right? Like just go right, you know, it, Badger Maps, right? So like go Badger Maps reviews and read them, right? Like read them all. Like, oh yeah, no, I, I do. I, I read all of them on like all 12 review sites. Like I, I cause I, yeah. I have to guide the engineering team and like, you know, figure out, you know, when I, when we strategize, what do we want to build next? What are people complaining about? What are they happy about? And you can talk to your customer success reps. Um, you know, the people that are talking yes. to your customers all the time, that's a great source of information, but also like the reviews are great because when people are really happy or really unhappy, it, it'll often show up there. And, and so I, I, uh, I cherish those reviews, especially if you get a, if you get one with constructive, constructive feedback, but uh, you're, we're like a 4.7 on a, on something like a G2. And like, yeah. so you're making me a little nervous because you said no, I have that's to be 4.3 to 4.5. Well, it's 4.2 to 4.5, but it skews different based on different categories, right? Well, I'll, I'll go on after this, uh, after this episode, I'll go on and, uh, and, and leave myself a crappy review. Don't these, do that. Right? These guys are dicks. <laughs> my nephew did that for my own book because of the thing. And I was like, no. <laughs> like, like he, he gave me a four and I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? He's like, oh, your, your reviews are too high. I was like, no, like the whole point is that like you erode trust when every comment is inauthentic, right? Like people can see through the authenticity. Yeah. And so if, if it's a, like, it, but that point about like you reading the reviews and using it for informing your product roadmap, use it to inform your messaging. Cause assume that your buyers either already see it before you've talked to them or they're gonna go do a Google search when you're done. 
And the minute that they go and do that and finds that it matches exactly, that's where your sales cycles speed up because they don't feel like they have to do more homework beyond you because you've become the trusted source for them. Yeah, I've, I've, I've looked at, you have to be careful with reviews too. You have to like look at them because yeah. a lot, some of the review sites are such, are, you know, anyone can just say whatever they want. And so the companies, you can tell it's written. I've got this one competitor that you, you on, I don't know why they've only done it on this what uh, on this one review site. But they literally gave themselves like 300 reviews, and you can tell it's the same. I don't know if they hired someone, but it's like the same like 20 sentences, but shuffled. Oh. You know, it's it's like, yeah. and it's all like names like Mary Johnson, <laughs> Timothy yeah. Gray. Like it's just like yeah. you know, it's like these are, like it's 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 transparently not real, but it's like okay. well. It, and that erodes trust so quickly. I'll tell you though, in power reviews, you know, we were working with retailers and brands. We had the technology in the background that was assessing where the IPs were coming from, and it was doing that language processing so that it would flag. So you could, for anybody that's like buying stuff from retailers, you can be pretty confident if it's a retailer that's reputable and using somebody like Power Reviews or Bizarre Voice or Yapo. Or, there's a few companies that are really good that they're doing that. Like you could probably trust most of the reviews, but that's where we get context. Like a negative review on a website, sometimes like, it was funny, like my wife and I were looking for a place to go have dinner and we were looking at the reviews and the, like one of the, the sets of reviews was talking about how, gosh, we went, it was like 6.30, 7 o'clock on a Friday night and like the service was terrible and it took them, we look at that and we're like, you know what? Like we're like an old couple we're going to go in like Thursday at four o'clock. So that's fine. Right. Not like, a problem. Absorb this stuff. Like we're not going to be there at seven o'clock on a Friday. So that's fine. How's the food. Right. <laughs> well, so, so let's just say that, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to quote you here. The, you, you have your cards facing upwards with your, uh, with your customer. You, you're being totally transparent. Um, or you want to be totally transparent. What give give us some suggestions on ways we can do that? I mean, obviously, like you, you use the example of upfront being like, let me tell you who we're not, or let me tell you what we don't do, or let me tell you where we're weak. Like, uh, you know, if I were going to advise my salespeople to be more, here's how you can be transparent. Like, here, transparency would be great. People would trust us faster. You know, here's how you can tell people, here's how you can be transparent about it's a weakness for us and a weakness for them, I guess. You know, we, we don't really serve this market that they serve well, this competitor of ours is two competitors, the, the door-to-door stuff. We don't do that well. We do do the B2B stuff really well. They don't. How, how, what are the strategies you would use? If, you were, if I were going to go, you know, on our group call on Friday to the salespeople, what would I, what should I tell them? How, what are the strategies they, to, that, that they could bring up with our prospects to, to build trust and do this? Yeah. I mean, again, it, it's got to come from the lens of your job is to help the buyer predict, not to convince them. That's number one. The second lens is that consensus uh, selling is hard. Boo-hoo, of course it is. Consensus buying is considerably harder. Remote consensus buying is exponentially harder, meaning your buyers are a lot remote. Like they don't just get to walk in and run into people in, in the hallways like they did before. Every consensus building exercise is an extra step. And that when we help the buyer do the homework for them, we speed all of that up and we differentiate the way we sell. And, and the, the quick analogy on that one is, again, it's a quick story, but um my wife and I, my two kids, nine and 11, we were out shopping. And uh, my wife, after we were done, was like, hey, sh- should we go get some ice cream? And my kids with their hawk hearing in the back seat are like, ice cream? Like, yeah, like they go crazy, <laughs> right? So like, we're, it's decided. There was no deciding. Um, and here in Chicago and in the Midwest and some other places, there's a place called Culver's. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if yeah, I'm from yeah. I'm from Chicago and went to college in Wisconsin. Hence, hence yeah, Badger. Like, everywhere in Wisconsin, everywhere. yes. Yeah, it, they they literally own the state. It's crazy. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Like every block, it's like Starbucks. But um, so for anybody that doesn't know, they've got um, 
butter burgers. Yeah, I was, okay, but, but they, I, I, I was going to say we should mention the butter burgers. They literally yeah. like they, they they almost deep fry a burger in butter, and then the bun is just like smear. They smear <laughs> butter on like mayonnaise. It's it'll kill you, but it's amazing. Exactly. Yeah, it'll it'll take years <laughs> off your life. But uh, they also have uh, frozen custard that is fantastic, right? That's what the kids love. And most people don't know what frozen custard is. It's like ice cream with it's denser ice cream it, yeah they, they take the air out by like whipping it they whip the air out of it and so it's like a thicker ice cream experience yeah, also it, will yeah. kill you but it's amazing oh it is amazing the kids love it and so we uh you know we decide we're going we got the means right money's in our pocket there's lots of interest the reward is there but when we get there there's 14 cars in the drive-thru line so we st- sit there in the line for a minute and I kind of look at my wife like, oh, this sucks, but like, it's fine. Like the kids want their, but it was my kids that leaned forward within a couple of minutes and said, hey, can we just go home? Like, really? And like my son's like, yeah, I just, I just want to go play some Minecraft. Like, let's get out of here. Like we're, we're fine without it. We don't want to wait. The point being that when we make it harder on our buyers, our, our buyer's perception of a reward is biased by the journey to get to it. Right. So when you if you're losing to the status quo all the time, it, a lot of times it's because they, they were interested. Right. They showed up, they inbound lead, they took your calls, they were engaged. And then suddenly they go status quo on you. Well, it might not be them. It might be you and the journey that you're taking on. And that, that's why I believe that this homework element is so important. So the strategy is, you know, first of all, like do the homework, right? Like do the homework for the buyer, like go do the research, read the reviews. What are they going to see? What are they going to hear from our competitors? Embrace the things that are true and, and negate the ones that aren't, but lead with that transparency, right? Look at the reasons why you lose. So one of the, the things I talk a lot about in my new book, uh, The Transparent Sales Leader, is this idea that forecasting only becomes accurate when uh, there, there's a number of things, but one of them is embrace a culture of losing and celebrating the losses. Like one time we, we did a champagne toast for a rep that lost. Like that might sound crazy, but they're already getting hit in the pocket and their quota. Celebrate the effort, but most importantly, celebrate the lesson learned so we don't keep losing for the same reasons. Those are the types of things that when you see the themes or see the intricacies based on different clients that we would then use as transparency, right? Like, hey, with this type of client, we lose for this reason all the time. Let's lead with it, right? Lead, lose fast. Another category might be pricing, right? Like if you're if you're more expensive, why not embrace that upfront and set that expectation, right? That like the, the term sticker shock has never been used in anything positive in the history of the planet, right? And it, like, it's not this whole idea that, oh, I'll add enough value so that when the price comes, they'll be like, oh, I under-. that doesn't happen. Like that's BS. Embrace, if that's a reason why you keep losing, lead with it. Like, hey, listen, we're, we're at the higher end from a pricing perspective. Right. And so if if budgets are going to be an issue, if this price range is not where you're thinking, let's address that now versus three months from now. Right. Talking about a six figure deal to a four figure buyer, one of you's in the wrong conversation. You better find that out now. Right. Those are the types of things. Again, empathy. Act like see the world through that buyer's eyes. Take all those reasons you lose, take the homework and create messaging that is that four, two to four, five, or as Tyra Banks would call it, like, why wouldn't we take our wisdom from a supermodel? She calls it flossom, right? Embrace your flaws, but know that you're still awesome. You don't suck. Four, two to four, five is important, but do the homework for the buyer and embrace those things that you give up to be great at your core. Easy for Tyra to say she should embrace her flaws. (laughs) 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 Well, and then I think this is, it, if you boil down what you're saying, it's, it's almost a rule to objection handling in general. You want to bring it up. You want to bring, if, if you've got, if, if you know there's going to be an objection or you know something's going to be an issue or you know something can qualify you out, bring it up in the beginning, bring it up as early as you can, and certainly bring it up before they do. So if your price, if you're high, if you're a high price product was your, was your um, example, bring it up up front. certainly before they do because you you know it's going to get talked about if you cost twice as much as your competitor and the answer the answer to why is probably a good one well we have 
twice as much cost because we're twice as good. Uh, right. <laughs> happens yeah. all the time, right? I mean, the mar market segment for a reason. Um, uh, but uh, but bring it up. Don't be. Don't let the customer bring it up because then you've got to defend. Whereas if you proactively bring it up, it's almost like people never believe a defense a hundred percent. But if but you you could actually so you lose trust a little bit. But if you had brought it up first, then it counts in the transparency column instead, and so you build trust a little bit for the same for the same exact, you know, quote unquote negative thing. Exactly, exactly. And like again, you know, when you read books on objection handling, uh, the best way to handle objections is the ones you know are going to happen. Address them before they become objections. Right? It's magic, and the trust that's built. And that they don't come back around. I mean, it's like the the movie uh, was it Eight Mile with Eminem? I don't know if you remember that movie. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, of a, course. There's a rap battle where Eminem is going up against another guy. Eminem goes first, and all his whole rap is self-deprecation. Right, right. And then he hands the mic to the other guy. Everybody's going nuts, and the other guy's just like, <laughs> "You just you just took out my entire like." That's part of the fun of this is you make it really hard on your competitors to compete against you, and if something comes up. Your, your buyer, because it's on a bed of trust, is going to come to you for clarification. They're not just going to blindly believe it because you've created that environment for them to do so. And what would you say some, uh, what, what, are, what are some companies or some examples where you've seen them really adopt this transparency approach well and, and how has that impacted their success? Um, especially if it's like in, in a, you know, the consumer world where we've all seen it? Oh, well, I mean, the consumer world, it's the companies like Ikea and Costco and like the, these companies that brand their negatives, right? Like you see, uh, like there was a billboard I saw where somebody had a shopping cart, it was Costco billboard shopping cart. And there was a, a tub of mayonnaise that was like bigger than them in it, right? Like they're, they're embracing that kind of stuff. It's, it's hilarious. And, you know, Costco, you know, if you're in any, any kind of subscription model, you know, Costco's subscription renewal rate for the memberships is like 96 plus percent, right? And it's- Oh yeah, that, I've had it for 15 years. <laughs> exactly, you don't even question it because they consistently meet expectations, right? Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's an important part. You know, on the B2B side, there are a number of companies that are doing that. Um, I'm, I'm actually working with, uh, like LinkedIn is one of my clients and I've done workshops for them around messaging, positioning and negotiating. And, um, and they're embracing- their perception that like they think they're the only game in town, right? And like you know, where else are you going to get this kind of information? And and they built they up. Are, they are the only game. Around. They they are the only game in town. <laughs> and there, there's an arrogance about it, and they know it. And so they're actually going into calls saying, "Hey, listen, before we dig into this, we understand that like this is out there, and if like." let's get that on the table now because like this is where we're trying to take these things and it's it's having a big impact on them and, and there's some other big companies that i've been working with that that their results are pretty awesome uh, but let's let's talk about that expectation setting for a second there, there's a misnomer in the world that when people hear expectation setting so many think you know what I, i'm one of those people that just loves to under promise and over deliver right well, we know that overpromise, underdeliver is bad news. Like, don't do that, right? That's clear. That's dumb. But the underpromise, overdeliver, just to blow some minds for a second, that's also terrible. And here's why: it's a form of lying, and it creates what I call expectation inflation. Which means that if you are consistently underpromising and overdelivering to me, what's going to happen? I'm going to take what you say and I'm going to inflate it. And that's going to become the new expectation. And when you don't hit it, I'm going to be disappointed. And the, the, the quick story on that, but you can think about this from a B2B perspective, like stop under-promising and over-delivering. Focus on setting accurate expectations, the pros and the cons, and consistently meeting them. That story was um, another thing with my kids. Uh, we went out to lunch, the place here in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago. Fantastic food. It was a great experience, but everything you would expect, right? You get there, sit down, you get your drinks, you get your menus, you order, you get your food, you ask for the check, check comes. The change though here is that when they bring the check, they brought us freshly baked cookies and milk for the kids, right? 
And like, so the kids, like they get this, it's an like something they weren't expecting. They're, they're like, these are the great, we got to come back again next week, right? Like they're so fired up about this place. And so excited, fresh cookies and milk, right? So we go back the next week. It, again, it was just as good, right? It was fantastic. Kids aren't as excited though, right? Because that's the new expectation. That's the reason they came. So their excitement level is where it should be expectation met. The funny thing is a couple of visits later, we get the check, cookies and milk come. Cookies are clearly not freshly baked. Like maybe they're an hour old. They weren't warm. My kids are pissed, right? They're like, like they're, they're freaking angry. They're just like, ah, I don't want to eat it. It's not that good, right? It's a new expectation that has been set that they suddenly were not able to meet. And the kids, again, you can look at the behavior of children so often and think about the mind's eye of your buyers because our brains all work the same way. We just have better controls over it as adults, like some of us at least. But <laughs> you know, the, the point being set accurate expectations that you can consistently meet because otherwise it is a form of lying and you will disappoint by over delivering on an expectation. And, and what are some more ways you can be like tactically accurate with your when, when you communicate like how, how can you be more transparent when you're when, when you're setting expectations how can you what are some other you know cards you can play to enhance transparency well I, I again i think it always goes back to seeing the world through the eyes of the buyer right like and you've got enough buyers unless you're a pure startup like right out of the gate and you don't know but part of the transparency then becomes embracing the fact that you're a startup and you don't know and throwing that card on the table. Like that was a conversation I had had with uh, one of our, like one of the companies that I'm on the advisory board of, where it's just like, hey, we got this big lead from a huge retailer. Should, like, should we tell them we're a startup? I mean, it was like three guys in a garage, like running this company. And I'm like, you better, right? Like if you don't, and they find out six months from now and it's gonna bother them, you just burned six months of cash. Yeah. Right. Like go in there right now, like hang up and go, Hey, before we get too deep into this, if this is going to bother you, let's address it. Now we're three dudes in a garage, right? Like we've got a concept. We, this is already working. Here's where it's working. Um, but if you don't feel comfortable with something strategic like this out of three dudes in a garage, let's address it right now. And what that did is it inspired an evaluation on that part right out of the gate to figure out whether that big retailer was going to feel comfortable. They're like, hey, let's look at your numbers. Let's look at your investment. Let's look at your cash runway. And we're so glad you did this before we spend a bunch of time on it too, right? I mean, there's just so many ways to think about it. What are you worried about? What do you think they're going to have heartburn worth? Check, ask, check with your customers. Check with the customers that just left that didn't renew. Check with the customers that you just lost from. Why did you lose? Are there common themes? Categorize them and then use that to help a buyer predict, right? That's all. It, it, yeah, like it, it doesn't have to be very hard. It's our job as a sales professional is to be the Sherpa for the buyer through their buying journey and to help them make a great decision, whether it's with you or with somebody else as quickly as possible. Absolutely. And you, you talk about behavioral science and decision sciences. What, why are these so important to being uh, transparent and, and your transparency philosophy? Well, yeah, it, it always goes back to this idea that, you know, neuroscientists have pretty much put their finger on how we as human beings engage and prioritize and decide and ultimately buy. And a lot of it comes through the research of watching, like, like the e-commerce world has been a huge lesson for us on the B2B or uh, human to human selling world, right? Just to watch like a, a human being left to their own devices, what do they do? What's the journey they take? How do they go about it? And then we can use that information for good, not evil, of course, to help make our jobs better. Now, I'm, I joked about a 1912 quote. And so I'm gonna bring it out now. You know, you know the, the idea that buyers know more nowadays, Right, like you hear buyers no more nowadays, right? Like that's sure, the internet in information. Do we even need salespeople now that we have the yeah. internet? <laughs> right, so buyers no more nowadays. That is a quote from Thomas Herbert Russell in his 1912 book, Salesmanship. 1912, 
110 years ago, they were worried about the future of the profession and that this idea of the proliferation of information matched up with the rise of advertising. That advertising, there's literally quotes from a 1907 salesmanship magazine that talk about the fact that um, sales leaders are foregoing hiring more sales in exchange for more advertising, right? That advertising was going to kill. And what happened? The profession flourished. Fast forward to 2015. 2015, so seven years ago, Forrester did a state of the sales world article. And it was like this prediction of what's going to happen. And in it, they proclaimed that 1 million B2B sales jobs would be eliminated by 2020. And that hundreds of thousands of college graduates would not enter the profession because of the proliferation of e-commerce. What happened? The opposite happened. Why? It's because more information has not made it easier on buyers. It's made it harder. Yeah. And that's why transparency and doing the homework for the buyer is so vital. And I believe that's the future of sales is we do the homework for them. We are embracing transparency. Our role is to differentiate by being a guide for them and to help them through that Culver's line, right? To help them through that process so that the reward is there. Expectations are set accurately and consistently met. That that's why the profession continues to flourish and buyers no more nowadays is not only a 110 year old quote, it's a seven year old quote. We still hear about it today, but salespeople doing right by the buyers means we always have a future. Absolutely. Yeah. Every time I, I I've heard, I've been hearing throughout my entire career in sales and it, oh, sales is going away. And every single time it's completely wrong. That's why <laughs> more information means it's been harder for buyers, not easier. And True. you spouting 5-0 speak to your buyers, you're driving them to do more homework, right? You're driving them to leave the Culver's line. Stop it, right? Like I, that, that's the magic. Mm-hmm. What what are what are some of the other biggest mistakes that you see salespeople making um, when it comes to trying to be transparent or not being transparent enough uh, on their transparency journey that you take them on? Well, I think you know that there's a couple of um, I guess I I don't know if it's symptoms is the right word, but like there, there's two things. Number one is empty pipeline syndrome, right? Like you know a, a salesperson is going to struggle with being uh, embracing transparency when their pipeline is empty. But the, the matchup with that is a sales leader that is focused on, and it was something I did wrong as a sales leader for a while too, this idea that, hey, at all times, you need to have 4X your quota and pipeline. Uh, uh, like you're only gonna close 25%, so go. And so what did sellers do? They fill their pipeline with crap. Right. Because hey, that's a measure. Right. I got to make sure this stuff is in there. If you've got an empty pipeline and you're afraid to lose because the truth isn't going to sell it, you, you might hesitate. And so you got to make sure that your leaders are aligned with you on this thing that and, and one of the important measures going forward for the history of or for the future of sales, in, in my opinion, is we've got to start measuring time to loss. Right? If it's taking you a long time to lose the deals you're losing, I bet you transparency is part of it, Right, that you're not being transparent, that you're not helping the buyer predict. It's taking you too long to lose. And so we as a sales leadership community, need you start looking at things like that and embrace that and help a, a salesperson to go, hey, listen, winning's the best thing. Second best thing is to lose fast. Yeah. Right. And, and, and like, really transparency is a subset of qualification, right? It's a, exactly. it's a, it's a part of the, you're, you're qualifying yourself to the customer almost, but it's a, but as, as a result of the part, it's a part of your job as a salesperson to qualify a deal. How would you measure transparency other than, other than just seeing when a, when a deal is created in a, in the CRM versus when it was marked lost? Yeah. I mean, I, the, the most important measures uh, where the, it's making the biggest impact, right. Is number one, um, so corporate executive board, which is now Gartner back in 2017, they had done a study that looked at consensus buyers and where they spend their time, right? Like when they're in a consensus purchase, where are they spending their time? Well, it turns out that only 39% of their time was spent talking to you, 
talking to your competitors or talking to their internal buying groups. The other 61% was spent doing other stuff. And that other stuff was back channeling, right? Talking to analysts, talking like, you know, reading reviews, uh, talking to peers, checking studies, like doing all that kind of stuff to basically get at the truth because you weren't sharing it. I, I think that the most important measures you can look at is number one, cycle lengths, right? For the deals that you win, but the deals that you lose. Transparency is having the biggest impact on making that 61% not a foregone conclusion, right? That that for Calvin Klein, for example, that story I told earlier, that's where we shrunk the sales cycle because they didn't need to do that extra homework. Like we did find out that that head of e-commerce did call a buddy that was with one of our customers. And that customer basically reiterated exactly what I had said. Like here, this is what they're great at. If you need this other stuff, they're not very good at that stuff. Right. And like, oh, that's exactly what Todd said. Right. And all of a sudden that need for the 61% goes away. So cycle lengths, number one. Number two is win rate. Right. That you don't need 4X your pipeline anymore if you're being truly transparent and qualifying in better and qualifying out the deals you're going to lose just faster. So your pipeline load of 4X is going to give you 200% of your number instead of 100% of your number. Right. And so those are the, those are the two core ones. And then, like I said, that time the loss measured, like just take a look and go, what's my cycle length on these deals that we're losing? And can I impact it by speeding that up? And then hopefully in some of these cases, again, when you lead with transparency and it is something that matters to them, you would be amazed at how many times, even personally for what I do, it meant they came back around to me, right? Like you end up winning a little later, right? Which is amazing because you've built that foundation of trust. I, I just had that happen. A CRO calls me and it's just like, uh, their head of enablement was like, you should talk to Todd Capone for these workshops. Like, all right, cool. Again, on the phone, CRO calls me and he's like, Todd, here's what we're looking for. We need this help and this help. I'm like, oh, uh, cool. All right, great. Tell me more about it. Good. It's not what I do, right? Like I can do it, but I'm not the best at that. Can I introduce you? There's two people that I'd like to introduce you to that are fantastic at what you need. And he's like, oh, that that's cool. That's surprising though. Wait. What is it you focus on? Like, what are you good at? Like, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I, I can do that stuff. I'm not very good at it. Here's what I'm great at. It's this, this, and this. And he's like, oh, oh all right, cool. Like, let's talk about that. It, I, that actually might be more of a priority. Let's do that, right? And I got the deal right away. So that's part of this whole thing. Help them predict. Stop trying to be something you're not. Stop trying to be all things to all people. Makes perfect sense to me. Um... Well, my next section of the podcast is uh, sales in 60 seconds. So quick questions, quick answers. Uh, first question, how does your knowledge of sales history, which is, uh, is, is deeper than anyone I've ever come across. We were talking about this before the show. Um, how, how, do you, how does your knowledge of sales history inform your focus on transparency? Well, I'll tell you, it's so funny that History, like we as a, a profession tend to step on the same rake over and over again, right? Like it's, we do things, things are cyclical. Um, we try to get away with things. But what's funny is this idea of transparency is not new, right? Like that quote, if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. Uh, there's a guy named Glenn Buck who worked for Henry Ford at Ford Motor Company. And he's got a quote that says, uh, if honesty uh, were not a thing, we would have to invent it as an efficiency measure, right? Like they always knew it. And so to find those things and to know that the basis for the sales profession and how our profession that I love and I'm so proud of, it was founded on a bed of honesty and trust and knowing that for it to be respected and admired, we as a profession needed to do right by our customers, to give them the right solutions at the right time at the right price. Because when we did that, those companies succeeded. And when they succeeded, they hired more. When they hired more, the economy grew. And when the economy grows, we as sales professionals, we all benefit from that. And that was the lens that sellers used back in the early 1900s, even in like 1916, when Woodrow Wilson was keynoting the World Sales Congress, which is the first sales Congress of its, uh, that's known in Detroit, Michigan in July of that year. That was the whole basis for his, uh, his keynote was, Salespeople, you are the vessel by which America becomes a world superpower, right? It was salespeople. And, and like that, for me, I just find so interesting and that, we, that there's so many lessons to be learned there. 
applying it to this idea that because of the proliferation of information, we got to do it anyway now. It's it, it just kind of like a magical combination. So cool. Yeah, I, I'd love to learn more about the uh, the history of sales. And I'm hoping that uh, your third book is about this. <laughs> um, the uh, So what's one valuable lesson from your sales history research that has, has stuck with you over the years? Well, I don't know if it's over the years, but it was this recent revelation. We were chatting a little bit about it earlier that like I had this revelation that um, well, there's two, if we've got a second, like one of them is, you know, sales forecasting was never an issue a hundred years ago. Like you read all these books that I've got, all these magazines from the early 1900s on sales, they complain about all the things that we still complain about, right? All of it. It's like objections are exactly the same. Everything is the same. There's some weird stuff, like, don't get me wrong, but forecasting was never an issue. My, my biggest revelation from it was this idea that back then, the foundation for all forecasting and all sales processes was something called AIDA that for anybody who's old enough that's watched the movie Glenn Gary Glenn Ross you saw Blake Alec Baldwin you know spout this abusive speech and in it he talks about AIDA like does the, like do you have the customer's attention are they interested uh, have he says decision but it's actually desire and I'll explain that in a second like are are do they have a desire for what we're selling and are they taking action right that back in 1898, Elias St. Elmo Lewis theorized that every buyer goes through those four steps, right? Attention, interest, desire, action. And it became the basis for every forecast and every sales process to the point where even in 1926, one author wrote, I'm not even going to talk about AIDA because every author and every expert knows that AIDA is the sales process and the way to forecast. The, the, the revelation is this idea that they always forecasted by looking and recognizing buyer behavior, right? Seeing the world through the lens of the buyer, understanding where they are in their journey makes it a lot more accurate to be able to predict when a buyer is going to buy, when you recognize their behavior versus today, where even your sales force or your HubSpot that comes out of the box, the stages are all seller focused, right? Discovery, qualification, demo, proposal, negotiate, close. It's what you're doing. You're getting endorphin rushes from your own activity. You're measuring forecast based on what you're doing. And like, oh, I can't figure out how we can't predict what a buyer's doing because you're looking at your own activity, right? Like th that was number one, that that one's a huge one. This, the quick second one, this is a fun one. You know, we talked about this idea that we are in a sales technology revolution right now, right? Like I've, sales is, like technology is filling every remaining crevice in the world of sales. Well, not, not just sales, but everything. Well, yeah, everything, <laughs> but like, like the sales stack, like I saw a chart that's got all the logos of the sales stack and it's like a billion things on it. You can't even make out the logos. It's, it's, now, about, it's about 5,000. We're, we're one of them. We're in like one bottom corner. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And the funny thing is, I would argue that the biggest sales revolution that ever happened, happened in the 1870s when the original... AGB, Alexander Graham Bell made the first phone call, right? Like that changed everything. Now, I, have, I, I found the first known uh, B2C cold calling script from 1910 and the first known B2B call, cold calling script from 1914. Like they were not using the phone for cold calling until at least the 1910s. But I believe that that was the beginning of the erosion of the profession of sales that while we have this technology to make it easier, it makes it it's like such a great gift to salespeople, salespeople ruined it to the point where we needed technologies developed like cold, or like a caller ID that Dr. Shirley Jackson invented in the 1960s. That didn't work. We needed the government to get involved to create the do not call registry. And Alexander Graham Bell would be rolling over in his grave if he knew that there is now 221 million phone numbers on the do not call registry. That's because of salespeople. Right. And we did the same thing with email, needed technologies to prevent, and then created the Can Spam Act of 2003 because salespeople ruined it. That, that's another piece for me that, like, you've got to have the right lens for the technology that you use to make sure that is it helping you help more buyers achieve optimal outcomes? Is it helping buyers to predict? If that's not the answer, then don't invest in that technology, right? Because we tend to take technology and ruin it 
when we're not using it through the lens of the buyer. Yeah, that, that, that makes a ton of sense. I, I, uh, we could talk for an hour about how sales has shifted from, you know, over the last 150 years, but I, but I, I feel like a, a lot of the sales game itself had a great name in the 19, you know, early half of the you know, 20th century and then gave itself a bad name by, by, by the middle. And, and, uh, and I, I think it was a lot of the technology innovations and, and a lack of integrity. Uh, you know, there were, there were certain sales professions that, that I think, you know, were just, you know, could, people a lot, but, but, you know, you, you could have a high integrity used car salesman who was honest that the transmission needed work and, you know, that, uh, the the belt the timing belt was going to need to be replaced in a year but i think there was there was a lot of uh there was an incentive not to not to be honest and or it was acceptable not to be not not to be honest and so i think there was you know there there's you know the marketing activities of calling a million people versus you know and and then you know that that definitely eroded things then the the loss of the loss of integrity through a lack of honesty but uh i i'd like to think that that a lot of sales is getting its good name back and that, you know, if you're making say an enterprise purchase or any large purchase purchase today, you you're often using a salesperson almost as a consultant to sift through the information and help you understand. And, and I think if you don't operate with integrity and honesty, it will. And if you don't have transparency, you will ultimately lose that deal and lose that customer because especially in a world of information, uh, lies and dishonesties tend to come, tend to come out and be discovered eventually. Yep. If the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. it. We, I feel like a lot of my questions today have been about your first book. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the trend it's titled the transparency, the transparency, transparency sale, sale, if I recall. Yeah. Yep. yep. Tell me, uh, what should we expect with your upcoming book? I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you for the for the you know the the elevator pitch on on the transparent sales leader that you have coming out. How if, if someone were to have already read your first book, why should they buy this? Why why should they spend their time on the on the transparent sales leader? Yeah, it's funny because um, people are like, oh, all right, yeah, Todd, we should be transparent sales leaders. That sounds great. It, actually, that's that's like a paragraph in the second book. Um, here's where this this concept started. When I first got promoted into sales leadership, right? Like I was a salesperson that always had a structure, a foundation, a process. I, two days in, I, I, I found myself chasing, right? Like my day, every single day was guided by whatever priority, whatever priority was there, right? Like, you know, forecast, uh, rep that's quitting, recruiting, board meeting, like it, it used to drive me nuts. I didn't have a process. I didn't have a structure for sales leadership and nobody ever trained me. Now, I ended up, because I'm a nerd, I thought, like, I need a structure. Like, I need a process so I can be proactive versus re reactive. I, I created one. And suddenly, it made me sound really smart. I started gaining control back. I used it for all my planning, my strategizing, my communicating, up, down, left, to right. Used it in board meetings. Used it in due diligence. Like, it became the structure for sales leadership. So that the five things that really encompass my job. And then over the last few years, I've added in all the behavioral science to optimize each one of those structures. And that's what the book is, right? It's as a sales leader, you probably don't have a process for sales leadership. Well, here's an easy one, all optimized by behavioral science and including a whole section on the intrinsic, or the, the, the science of intrinsic inspiration, meaning what actually drives you and your team to show up every day, to stay, to do their best and become advocates for you and your company. So structure, science, all on a bed of transparency. Like we run behind people that are transparent, not people that suck, but people that are transparent. It pulls that all together in an easy to implement way to think about sales leadership. And the very least, you're going to sound a lot smarter uh, the, the minute you get done reading it. Absolutely. And if you were going to advise a field salesperson, to take step one uh, towards becoming more transparent, what would what would that advice be? Tomorrow, do this. Yeah, I think do your homework. Do the homework for the buyer, right? Know that transparency sells better than perfection, and because of the proliferation of information, you got to do it anyway. 
So do the homework for the buyer, be an advocate for them. And I, I think that last part is, remember, your job is not to convince them. Your job is to help them predict. Well, I'm going to try to summarize, uh, you know, my notes on what, what you've said today, the takeaways here for, for a couple minutes. Uh, first, transparency is all about embracing the truth, right? So you want to help buyers see the pros and the cons of your product, and that will build trust and speed much, much faster and, and compress your sales cycle. Buyers don't buy when they're, when they're convinced. Buyers do buy when they can predict and understand what they're getting, what the risks are, et cetera. So if as a seller, you can help buyers predict, um, then, then that is transparency. That's the core to transparency. And if you can do that, you're going to sell faster, compress your cycles, sell more. It, with every interaction with a potential buyer, you're, you're either building trust with them or you're eroding it. You want to embrace transparency from that first conversation so that you're that you're building trust. Buyers are are biased based on the journey to get the reward. So if, if you make their journey short shorter and, and Todd said do their homework for them, make it easier for them to buy um, but through transparency, you will, you will help them get the reward faster and they won't get out of line in the ice cream store like, like Todd's kids. Can I, can I clarify on that one? Yeah. It, it's not that it, you gotta make it easier. It's you gotta set the proper expectation. Like when you go to Disneyland in the summer, you know you're gonna wait an hour and a half for It's a Small World, but that's the expectation and you wait in line. My favorite taco shop, you know, noon on a Friday, you're gonna wait in line. I'm willing, I'm ready, right? But when you go to Culver's, and you show up on a you know three o'clock on a Wednesday and there's 17 cars in line, you're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. And you get out of line. It's set accurate expectations, consistently meet them. And that includes the journey and look for ways to remove friction from it. Makes sense. Um, you want to address objections that you know will happen before they happen. And, and that will make it a lot harder for your competitors to compete with you. You never want to overpromise uh, or un never want to underpromise and overdeliver. Uh, you want to focus on setting accurate expectations and meeting them. Uh, ask customers why they didn't buy so that you can integrate these objections into your sales conversations in the future. You want to use transparency and it'll make a, a big impact on your cycle lengths and uh, your, your win rate. Todd, this has been just invaluable. I think we touched on a lot of really interesting topics today. Where can our listeners read more about your work? Um, obviously your books, but how can they reach out to you? What's, what's the best way to interact with you? Yeah, I mean, toddcapone.com has got everything, right? It's uh, articles, podcast episodes, videos, all free, uh, links to where to buy the book, um, and an easy way to reach out to me, information about my workshops, uh, that I teach for salespeople and for sales leaders. And that's uh, probably, but LinkedIn is, I share a lot of my nonsense there. If you want to connect or follow, uh, if you do connect, let me know where you heard, uh, where you heard me and I will absolutely accept. Awesome. Well, this has been a great episode of the outside sales talk. If you work in field sales, yeah, you'll love Badger Maps, the number one route planner that helps people sell 20% more and drive 20% less. You can get a free trial, badgermapping.com today. And if anyone can think of any other sales reps that would, would benefit from learning the stuff that Todd's taught us about today, definitely share this episode along to them. Todd, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That was a blast. Absolutely. Well, take care until next time, everybody.